Welcome to the Down Ballot Counts post-election special. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It is Monday, November 9th. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris addressed the nation Saturday night after Pennsylvania was called in their favor. We'll talk about how Democrats had a good election, but not as good as they were expecting, with Jeffrey Pollack, a top Democratic pollster. After that, we'll break down an ad airing in the only battleground left on the map, Georgia. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's Gem. Jerome's Gem, my number of the week is one. That's the net gain of Senate seats Democrats made in the 2020 election thus far. They flipped Republican-held seats in Colorado, defeating Senator Cory Gardner, and in Arizona, unseating Senator Martha McSally. In Alabama, Democratic Senator Doug Jones was defeated by Republican Tommy Tuberville in Jones's bid for a full six-year term. This one-seat net gain represents an underperformance by Democrats who had hoped to win a majority of the seats. Presuming the Republicans prevail in uncalled Senate races in Alaska and North Carolina, where they are leading and expected to win, Democrats cannot win 51 seats and can do no better than a 50-50 Senate with incoming Vice President Kamala Harris as a tie-breaking vote only if they win both runoff elections January 5th in Georgia. And that's your Jarrow's Gem of the Week. All right, up next, we'll bring on Jeffrey Pollack. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Jeffrey Pollack, a founding partner and the president of Global Strategy Group, a public affairs and polling firm for companies, causes, and campaigns. The firm counts some three dozen Democratic members of Congress as clients, plus scores of state officials, among others. Jeff, thanks for coming on the pod with us. Glad to be here. All right. So last Tuesday was a pretty good night for Democrats. It took a few days, but uh, they were celebrating in the streets uh, a couple days ago over the weekend. Um, Democrats won the White House, held the House, um, and have a chance to win the Senate majority uh, with a pair of Georgia runoffs. Uh, but polls seem to indicate it would be an even better night for the party. Um, what were you expecting going into the election? Well, we did expect Joe Biden to win, and he did. We expected to hold the House. But as I'm sure you know, most of us thought that we would do better. Um, in the Senate, the truth is, is that um, in the private polling, um, that the path was always difficult. Uh, and Senator Schumer um, was very, very clear in knowing how hard it was. Um, uh, but we definitely did not uh, win what we wanted to or expected to uh, on Tuesday night on the, uh, in the Senate. And do you attribute that to anything going wrong with the polls? Well, I mean, some, something has to be wrong, right? Like it's not. And, and look, four years ago when the polls were off, there are a number of my um, colleagues in the industry who put their heads in the sand and said there's nothing wrong. Um, we did not do that. We came out very quickly and said there's something going on. We got to look at it. Uh, and we had seen a, a glimpse of that in 2015 when the polling was very off um, in the Democratic governor's race in Kentucky. I think what we're going to see in just sort of the roughest um, guess of uh, and and as you just said, Kyle, you know, we still have to look at when votes are counted. Like if I had talked to you on Tuesday night about polling error in Michigan, I would have told you that the polls were wildly wrong. Well, guess what? 
now that the votes are counted, the polls actually look pretty good in Michigan, um, uh, all things considered. So I think what I am finding so far, and again, it's big, big caveat so far, is that in places where the presidential was competitive, take a place like Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera, take the states where the presidential was competitive, I think the polls are going to end up being pretty good. Um, not great. And there's definitely going to be a, a, um, a bias against Trump that's going to be there. But the polls, I think, are going to show things to be relatively okay. Um, where the polls are going to be uh, wildly off and needs to be explained is in these deep red states, in places like Montana and Iowa uh, and even Ohio. Um, and look, there's no question. Everybody had the same data. Uh, the Republicans thought the same. The Democrats thought the same. I'm confident Trump and, and Biden thought the same in terms of what was competitive. So it's not like any one data set was was better than the others. Um, uh, but in these deep red states, something is going on. And I don't have an answer to why. I have a guess. I think that we're probably not talking to these Trump voters in some way, shape or form. Um uh, but I can't prove it yet, uh, and I certainly um, can't do it until till the votes are counted. Um, but I, I'm I'm not going to sit here and say everything's perfect. I'm also not going to sit here and say um, the polling industry is dead. I think there's um, been a, a a big rush um, to that conclusion that that I could already disprove um, uh, just you know a week after the less than a week after the election is over. Well, and to your point um, uh, about, you know, calling out the polling industry right after the elections, you did write a blog post right after the 2016 election saying why we all missed it. Um, I thought it was fascinating um, when I read it then and just looking at it again um, over the last few days. Um, what did change in polling strategies uh, in the last four years? Clearly not for not not everyone changed anything, but yeah. There was clearly an attempt to try to find some of these uh, shy Trump voters, maybe. Yeah, I mean, look, I never thought it was shy Trump voters in 2016. I, I, I think that what we found in 2016 was that we weren't talking to enough non-college educated white voters in uh, across the states, across all the states. Um, and the reason for that was for so long we had relied on exit polls that were telling us the electorate was more college educated than it was. Um, and after 2014, when the schism between college-educated uh, white voters and non-college became uh, dramatic, that's when it became important. So we saw that in 2015 in Kentucky. We should have seen it in 2016, um, but we didn't in advance. But looking back on it, we did see it. So we made adjustments and the polling was generally right. In 2017 and 2018 and 2019, we can look at it. Frankly, even in the Democratic primaries, like I was working for Ed Markey um, uh, in the primary in Massachusetts and we had him winning by double digits and he did. Um, uh, against Joe Kennedy. So, I mean, even going as far as through the, the Democratic primaries as late as September, which is what that was, um, there wasn't anything that suggested uh, that polling was really having a, having a real problem. So um, I think that what we need to look back and figure out is what, what it, wh while we made that change in terms of non-college educated white voters uh, in 2016 that made some fix, is there some group of people who are opting out of talking to us? Not shy Trump voters, because shy Trump suggests that they're um, scared to tell me that they're voting for Trump. I think these people are just not talking to us at all, is my guess, um, because they're not going to be shy about telling me that they're going to vote for Steve Daines in Montana or Joni Ernst in, in, in Iowa. Um, and those polling errors are going to be the same. The Senate and the and the presidentials are, are going to be the same. So I think maybe we need to um, rebrand the shy Trump voter to... Um, 
to um, uh, an aggressively not paying, um, uh, an aggressively not participating in poll Trump voter. That's a pretty crappy name, so I need to come up with something better. Um, but that is my suspicion that there's some group of voters that have opted out of, of talking to us um, uh, as researchers, um, and we need to figure out how to deal with that. I do not have the answer today, but that is a guess. It's just a guess. I could be wrong, but it is my guess. And is polling becoming more difficult than it was before? Is it tougher to get a representative sample of voters than it used to be? So good question, Greg. But the the answer is no. Um, Like particularly during the pandemic, it was easier. Um, It was easier to talk to people and and get people to participate, whether on the phone or online. Uh, And I realize that that depending on a pandemic is not something that the research business cares to do. Um, But like from an ease of getting things done, that wasn't the issue. And when you look at the samples that we um, that we did in many of these states, I don't think that's going to be the problem. Look, we do a lot of things. We do a lot of um, we make a lot of adjustments. We weight the data in terms of the things that we know. So, for example, we can look back and look at the data and see how did these voters vote in 2016? And so take a state like Iowa. If your sample shows you that it is a sample of voters that voted for Donald Trump by eight, nine points, which is what he won by. And then the sample is representative by gender and all the other things that that we need. It's not a representative sample thing. Um, g- uh, generically, like like big picture. But again, this is a particular thing. Is there a group of folks um, who are not participating? And I, I'm going to say this, um, uh, and and you know, you guys are the first person, first first people that I've really talked to about some of this stuff. So it's not like I have it all. Um, uh, even even uh, my theory is kind of just being half baked. Um, the QAnon stuff, and I'm and and it's taken on such negative um, uh, uh, characteristics for good reasons. Um, but that is a group of voters, for example, who very clearly distrust government. They dr- distrust um, academics. They distrust research. So that's a significant group of people. Have they just shut off the phones or shut off any means of communicating um, with us? That's just a small example. I don't think that QAnon explains everything, but I think it's an easy thing for all of us to understand um, as a group of voters who have shut off and said like, no, I'm not paying attention to this stuff. I'm not because all of it's fake and I'm not going to be a part of it. Um, And if that's the case, then, Greg, maybe there is some portion that isn't being represented uh, or represented in these samples. But from a sort of academic perspective, we wouldn't look at it and say the samples aren't representative. We would have thought that they were. And what are some of your main takeaways from this election? What lessons should Democrats take away from this election as they prepare for the next one? Well, it's it's hard to say that there that Donald Trump isn't a singular um, feature in terms of what happened in this election. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, in in 2018, Democrats won in all of these places, um, including moderate to conservative places. Um, when Donald Trump was not on the ballot. In 2020, when Donald Trump was on the ballot, the Senate races with one major exception, and that's Maine, um, uh, but over two cycles now, in 2016 and 2020, the presidentials and the senatorials have tracked identical to to each other. And so if we're going to lose by 10 points to Donald Trump um, in Iowa, we're probably going to lose that Senate race by by 10 points. Now, that doesn't give any of us in this business a, a, a heck of a lot of comfort because it means... What the hell are we supposed to do? We're useless. Um, um, so I'm not ready to say we're useless. Um, uh, that'd be pretty bad for business. 
But I am, <clears throat> uh, but I do think that Trump is a singular factor that I'm not ready to say extends beyond him. Somebody's going to try to take up his mantle after 20, um, but Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham are poor excuses uh, for Donald Trump. Um, they don't. They don't even come close um, uh, to to being who he is in terms of the cult of personality. Um, and so, Greg, I'm I'm nervous that we don't overlearn from something that is singularly focused on Donald Trump. I'm also worried that we don't underlearn and say, like, again, something like there's a disconnect. We're clearly not connecting. The Democratic Party did a great job this year of connecting with urban voters, with suburban voters, where generally we did better um, uh, and continue to build on 2018. And the disconnect between um, uh, rural voters and some of those white working class voters continues. Yes, Joe Biden did a little better um, with some of those white working class voters in a lot of places. Uh, but writ large, we are getting our ass kicked with those um, folks as Democrats and have to do something um, to begin to, to, to at least lessen the, the, the crushing that we get um, from those rural um, uh, and exurban areas. Well, and that leads to my next question. Just for our listeners, I want to be clear that polling isn't only a predictive tool. It's also critical for campaigns um, to know what they're going to talk about. Can you, can you discuss a little bit about you know, what your firm does for a campaign? Yeah, sure, Kyle. And, and I say it all the time, like predicting what the election is going to be is actually the least important part of my job. Our job is about trying to figure out three things, really. A, a pollster on a campaign is meant to say, what do we say? How do we say it? And who do we say it to? Three things. What do we say? How do we say it? Who do we say it to? What do we say? What should we be talking about? What are the issues that people want to hear about and want to talk about? Um, how should we be talking about? What's the language we should use? Should we use these words or that word? It depends. And then finally, who should we say it to? Who are our target voters? Um, and so I think that polling still proved to be valuable um, in, uh, in a lot of ways in lots of places. And again, we won lots of races um, thinking about how we were talking about things. But we have to ask a question. Look, we ran races in 2018 that were all about health care um, and we won. We ran a lot of races in 2020 on health care and lost. Does that mean that the, that the um, research that we did to figure out that healthcare was still such a critical thing um, is invalid? No, it goes back, Kyle, to, to Greg's question, which is, is it Donald Trump that is singularly overwhelming um, what happened on the, the presidential level? Um, so I don't think that what we do from a campaign perspective in terms of figuring out message, talking to voters, listening to them in an unbiased way, um, that doesn't feel like that part of what we do um, uh, 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 is dead uh, in any way. Um, but we still have to question um, you know, there's an ongoing battle right now about the defund the police question uh, in the Democratic, you know, my party does a very good job. We win the presidency and we beat the shit out of ourselves. Perfectly logical, typical Democrats, right? So did it hurt? Like, it, look, it's hard to not say that a defund the police message um, uh, probably hurt some folks like a Max Rose in, in Staten Island. Um, I'm sure it did. Um, but do I think that that's really the thing that, that hurt in all these races? No, I, I, I don't. I think that Donald Trump is the thing that hurt us in many of these races and that we're going to find that the races track very closely to Trump, his increasing of turnout um, with folks. The, um, all the progressive efforts on the left in terms of generating enthusiasm, critically important, like we can't discount it. 
Um, there's the current conversation about, oh, you know, Donald Trump did better with African-American voters and Latino voters. That's a ridiculous notion. Like, sure, it's possible that he did a couple of points better, but Joe Biden is the president um, in no small part because of black and brown voters. Um, and like we tend to look at these small movements and, and make big statements that are just not right. Um, uh, and I think we have to be careful about that when we're thinking about not only polling, but even when we frankly look at results, Kyle. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Jeff, it was great chatting with you. You can check out Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Pollock, and that's Jeff with one F. Thanks, guys. Okay, up next, we're heading to Georgia. Raphael Warnock eats pizza with a fork and knife. Raphael Warnock once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Kelly Leffler doesn't want to talk about why she's for getting rid of health care in the middle of a pandemic. So she's going to try and scare you with lies about me. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because I'm staying focused on what Washington could do for you. And by the way, I love puppies. That was an ad from Raphael Warnock, the Democrat running in the Georgia Senate special election. He is clearly trying to undercut the attacks he knows are coming. Greg, what stood out to you? Yeah, it's a lighthearted ad Warnock is using to try and humanize him and also brace Georgians for an onslaught of negative TV ads that's likely to ensue given the high stakes of his January 5th runoff against Republican Senator Kelly Leffler. It also draws a contrast with Leffler on health care, so that's a preview, I think, of some contrasts uh, we'll see uh, from Warnock on health care, which is an issue that Democrats have run pretty hard on. Leffler and Warnock haven't engaged uh, much yet because it was clear there would be a runoff and Warnock would finish in first place as the preferred candidate of the Democratic establishment, while Leffler was concentrating less on Warnock and more on shoring up her right flank and fending off another Republican, Congressman Doug Collins, in that uh, first-round special election. Georgia is hosting a second runoff election January the 5th between Republican Senator David Perdue and Democrat John Ossoff. Ossoff is on the air in that race as well. As noted earlier, Republicans keep their Senate majority if they win one out of the two runoffs. I can't imagine a split result here, so I think the Republicans will win both or the Democrats will win both. Look for a huge spending effort by the candidates and their allied super PACs in a state that hosted an extraordinarily close presidential election, Kyle. This will be a fun couple months. Okay, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week I try and stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But first, let's review last week's question and answer. And I noted we would know by today if we we would have one or two Senate runoff elections in Georgia in early January, and we now know that there will be two. And my question was, in what state and year was the most recent Senate runoff general election? And because I'm such a nice guy, I'll give you four choices. Was it in Mississippi in 2018, Alabama in 2017, South Carolina in 2014, or Georgia in 2008? Kyle, do you have an answer for us? I'm going to go Alabama, 17. Okay, the answer is actually Mississippi in 2018, when Republican Cindy Hyde-Smith defeated Democrat Mike Espy in a runoff a few weeks after their regular November election. Hyde-Smith defeated Espy in a rematch last week. And now for this week's question. Arizona Democrat Mark Kelly, who was elected to the Senate last week, is a retired astronaut who was a NASA space shuttle pilot. But what former U.S. senator is the most recent person still living to have walked on the moon? 
Again, what former U.S. senator is the most recent person still living to have walked on the moon? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post the question as a Twitter poll with four choices. I will give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, Kyle, we have a lot of uncalled house races, almost two dozen of them as we speak uh, on Monday the 9th. Many are in New York and California, where there are a lot of ballots left to count. I'm watching Anthony Brindisi in New York and Lauren Underwood in Illinois. And there's a seesaw battle in Utah's 4th District between Democratic incumbent Ben McAdams and Republican challenger Burgess Owens. It's clear that Democrats will keep their House majority, but how many seats they lose, uh, that will be determined by the results of these uncalled races. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.